Hello and welcome to the first episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll cover the history of the gardens of the Umayyad society in Al-Adenis. The Al-Adenis was a civilization that had great gardens that were admired by Muslims as well as Christians and Jewish people throughout the medieval and modern era. We'll cover the gardens that dwelt in this region from the 8th century to the Caliphate era. You'll start off the Emirate period, which lasted between the 8th and 9th century AD. During this time period, the first king of the Umayyad region was Abdid al-Rahman, known by another name al-Rufzafa, after the Syrian palace built by his grandfather. The palace held extensive estates just outside the city, which were similar to Roman villas. These served, this served as housing for dignitaries, as well as agricultural and garden land, mainly used for recreation. There's also a Roman hydraulic system from the 1st century CE, indicating that this garden was built long before Islam came around, and the Muslims simply maintained it. Another source suggests that a Berber chieftain conquered this location and constructed this all from scratch, obtaining extensive gardens and rare plants from far and wide as well as the various materials used to build the irrigation system. And then this Berber king passed on his gardens and estate to his heirs, which continued to rule this region for a time. This was then conquered by the Islamic tribes, who then made use of the technology that they developed. It's still heavily debated whether or not the irrigation system was of Roman-built or Berber-built, with one argument being that the Berber group would likely know how to take advantage of the existing hydraulic system and run with it to the highest degree, bringing plants from elsewhere to convert the region into a large prosperous area. But other researchers have found that there's a long historical role of the Berbers using a similar hydraulic system, and that the Berber tribes of the Hiwara region had extensive knowledge of hydraulics. There's various speculations on what it was used for, some say as a fortified villa, and others say it's a botanical garden. The latter argue that since there's many opponents of the Umayyad regime in the capital, building the center of power outside of the capital would be ideal from a strategic standpoint. And since the walls are built for war, so it seems, this lends credence to that idea. But a sheer number of plants grown in the garden areas and work on acclimatizing different crops to that environment seems to suggest that it was a botanical garden. During the 19th century, many plants that are used for foods and vegetables were also grown for ornamental purposes, and a great many food crops were grown in that region and the number increased during the 9th century. As the gardens began to grow, various poems were written about these gardens, such as the one seen here. And during the lifetime of Muhammad, one of the princes of this region had begun developing war wheels. And since Muhammad had some interactions with this region, the depiction of paradise must have been loosely based off of these gardens. Speaking of which, now onto the Caliphate era. During the era of the Caliphate, Abdid Allah, the king of that region during the Caliphate era, took extensive tolls on the culture of that region effectively changing the way science was done during that time period. Although at that point, science continued to be practiced due to the fact that, due to the interest of the courts, cultural and scientific activity grew later on thanks to the patronage of the next-in-line king, Al-Hakam II, while he was still a prince. And during the 10th century, medicine flourished in terms of herbalism and a great many works were done into the integration of medicine and diet. During this time, the plants within the gardens were studied extensively, and writings about medicine, diet, and healthcare were booming at that time. Many of the sources used by the Islamic community were, of course, Quranic in origin, but it also made use of the Galenic and other Greek texts on medical herbs of that time period. And there's many translations of ancient Greek writings, such as the Materia Medica by Dioscorides, which was sponsored by, by yet another king of Umadid, 
and various physicians also wrote during that time period, studying different flowers that dwelt in these gardens. These writings were later compiled into the work known as the Calendar of Cordoba and the Al-Anwa. This contained the list of different herbal remedies, medicinal plants, and ornamental plants. It was also during this time that botanical gardens began appearing at that region as well. And the philosophical tradition of the colorful cultural world began to be built from this. And the gardens of this region became the template for the gardens of Madanet al-Zabara, which was a city palace developed by Abdid al-Rahman III. In 936. During this time period, the Umayyads had a rival called the Fatimids of Irakafia, which built her own garden to rival the Umayyad garden. Since these two regions were Sunni and Shiite respectively, this rivalry was religious in nature. Both were trying to project a partial vision of paradise and both were visited by the Imams of their respective sects to see how close they are to the vision of paradise. And the Caliph of Dumayyad was also following the philosophy of Al-Farabi, an Islamic philosopher that synthesized the Aristotelian and Platonic philosophies into his own theory of ethics, leading to the... This philosophy was based around building a philosopher king around a perfected garden city-state. Consequently, another reason for the building of this garden would be to create the ideal city-state, and for the leader to be the philosopher king. Al-Farabi's philosophy was based around the ideal city was intimately tied through religion, through the Neoplatonic idea of the imitation of God, where the goal of the human beings to become as much like God as possible, through doing good and acquiring wisdom, and as a result, reconstructing the divine on Earth, which would be another reason for the Imams being invited to look over the garden, and another reason for its immense size and grandeur. Well, that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll cover the history of medieval gardens in Spain and Portugal, specifically the gardens of Al Andulus, which were the gardens of Italy and Portugal during the Caliphate occupation. The paper by Wendy Davis, which I'm drawing from, uses archaeobotanical evidence in combination with written records, paint a picture of what was going on in Italian and Portuguese gardens during the 9th and 10th century AD. The earliest known accounts of the Islamic conquests of Spain and Portugal is the 11th century work by Ibn Hayyan, which details many garden aspects within the Caliphate gardens. In the common translations, it was found that in Cordoba, Spain, there was sugarcane being grown directly within that climate area or close by to it, indicating that the gardens of Spain, while under Islamic rule, grew sugarcane. If this is the case, then the Islamic conquest of Spain may be how Europe obtained the first sugarcane varieties. Within these translations, it was also mentioned there's intensive watering mechanisms and water used to make sure all the plants are watered. This was also referenced in Iberian texts during the medieval ages. Within the sites where many of these gardens were once held, they found remnants of terraces, walkways and service quarters, as well as reception rooms, and the foundations of what we would call an oriental salon. There's also various descriptions of the different gardens, commonly grown by Islamic kings and rulers, such as Pavilions with big enough buildings for horses, descriptions of olive and fig trees, and a reference to something called the Rose Gate. These gardens were, however, only for kings and their officers, not for regular Joes. A writing by an Iraqi merchant of that time period, specifically the 10th century, mentions the appearance of violence and figs, mentioned various types of fruit trees within the region, specifically Toledo, Spain. Another work by anonymous Arabic agronomist of that time period mentioned the times for planting and harvest of various types of fruit and vegetable, indicating that even under Islamic rule, gardens for food still were being grown. And various other writings regarding vegetable growing and fruit growing 
have also been found and translated, many of which date back to the 6th century. Now onto some more archaeobotanical evidence. Based on the archaeobotanical evidence and the archaeological evidence, it appears that gardens were not communal but managed separately by families within this time period. This practice seems to predate and exist long after Islamic conquest of the regions of Spain. The excavators also found remnants of silos, which would be storage pits, which were small in size. Now onto the plants and produce found in the remnants. Within many of these archaeobotanical remnants, they found remnants of both naked and hulled wheat, as well as hulled barley, and in some cases, rye. With rare cases of millet, which includes broom corn millet and foxtail millet. Other writings also mention that millet was grown in the northern parts of Spain, although without specification to which species is being grown. In various texts, there are references to pears, cherries, plums, figs, and occasionally mulberry being grown in orchards, as well as occasional references to nut crops like walnuts and chestnuts. This appears to be consistent with Dr. Andrew Watson's argument that the first known green revolution was introduced in the Middle Ages by the Arabs, although later evidence seemed to discredit some of Dr. Watson's claims, because while some new species were introduced to Spain during the 10th century by the Arabs. A larger amount of plant introductions occurred after the invasion was concluded, and the Arabs left Spain. But the Cordoba calendar also mentions other crops that are grown in 10th century Spain and Portugal, which includes rice, sugarcane, bananas, and carrots and lettuce, as well as various ornamentals like roses, vods, and jasmine and one of my favorite vegetables, onions. In still other archaeobotanical areas, other pits, silos, and occupation layers were found, and outside of the usual suspects, wheat, barley, rye, and oats, there were also remnants of other crops such as red pea, grass, vetch, figs, grapes, and walnuts. And during the 8th and 9th century, there were also found broad beans, grapes, vetch, lentil, grass, and red pea. They also found remnants of cherry seeds in that area as well. And in certain Christian sites that predate the Islamic invasion, they also found remnants of various fruits and vegetables such as fig and olive being the most common. But otherwise, the same range of fruit varieties were found in Christian times as they were in Islamic time periods. So at least in terms of fruit, Islam did not add very much to it. The cereal range in pre- Islamic sites, such as old Christian sites, are roughly identical to what were found after the Islamic invasion, and there are very few vegetables found in both Christian and Islamic sites, although the variety increased when Islam came about within Spain, indicating that some of the vegetables were introduced during the Islamic invasion. In conclusion, based on the current archaeological and textual evidence, the Italian and Portuguese diet during the medieval time period relied less on vegetables and more on fruit and grain and legumes. And the only thing that changed between the early Christian era followed by the Islamic conquest was the range of vegetables and some of the ornamentals found within these gardens and farms. Other than that, not much else changed garden or or agriculturally wise well that all covers everything thank you for watching have a good one hello and welcome to another episode of plant culture in this episode we'll cover edward j wixon the king maker of fruit breeders we'll go over the background of this unique individual and then two notable plant breeders helped by this individual let's get started Dr. Wixson was a professor of agriculture in the University of California. He was born in 1848, August 3, and became a professor in 1891, eventually becoming dean in 1905. He organized the first dairy association within California in 1876. He was also a lecturer in 1879 within different universities, and wrote a large amount of different 
scientific articles at that time period, as well as various practical journals for farmers, alongside various newspaper articles and several volumes of books related to fruits and vegetables and garden flowers. He died in 1923, July 16th. He was also one of the first individuals to promote the use of microscopes in scientific research, creating the San Francisco Microscopical Society. This group was defunct after its laboratory was destroyed in an earthquake, however. Now on to his king-making abilities. He also helped the real estate developer J.C. Forkner generate a fig farming facility within California. And with his help, J.C. Faulkner formed the company J.C. Faulkner Fig Gardens, a viable commercial enterprise for farming figs within California. Albert Eder, another individual who bred fruit within California, was working on breeding strawberries and apples. During his time with Luther Burbank, he wrote several books praising the hybrids Luther Burbank developed, and due to his great fame, Dr. Wixon's books brought Luther Burbank into the limelight, making his fruit famous throughout California. His glowing speeches also made Burbank into the legendary figure he is today, thanks in part to his great oratory skills. His time as Dean of the University of California helped develop the Citrus Experimental Stations at Riverside which became key for many of the citrus breeding programs in the University of California. Dr. Wixon would also mentor Albert Eder as well, forming a joint project that would breed many different strawberries that would land Albert Eder fame, but not fortune, unfortunately due to bad business decisions. The high quality of the fruit developed in combination with Dr. Wixon promoting Albert Eder as the successor to Luther Burbank, led to the strawberries being grown in Oregon, England, New Zealand, and Australia alongside California. And unfortunately, due to the fact that the time it took for these new varieties of apple to grow to full size and fruit was long at that time period, Albert Eder died before most of the fruit took form. But to this day, many of Eder's and Wixson's strawberries are the base for many of the California breeds of strawberries today. And as a final legacy, both Luther Burbank and Albert Eder both named apples after Dr. Wixson, with Luther Burbank naming one cultivar of plum after him, and Albert Eder naming a high-sugar, high-flavor crab apple after Dr. Wixson. Well, that concludes everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll cover Charlemagne and his peaches. In this episode, we'll cover the history of Carolinian cultivation of peaches, the various theories about how it happened, and how Charlemagne was involved in the whole process. In the Carolinian region of France, in the 9th century, Charlemagne the Frank became the first ruler of this empire. One scholar, Chris Wickham, he stated that it's likely that the overreach of state power and the extraction of various wealth inhibited the production of peaches, and until Charlemagne the Frank eased off, peaches were not grown that often. However, Christopher Lovelock has found that the archaeological record does not correspond to this narrative. The most likely situation is that, and so, Dr. Noah Bland studied the various literatures found, both in reference to the archaeological studies, as well as various historical documents, as well as the dig sites themselves alongside the historical writings themselves. And here's the results. In the early parts of the medieval Carolinian Empire, there is an increased cultivation and reliance on chestnut trees. This was because, although it had high startup labor costs, the costs were lighter in terms of maintenance due to the ease of harvest, ease of growth, and long lifespan of the tree itself. However, the cultivation of peaches is much more intensive and the trees less shorter amounts of time. This discouraged early Frankish growers from cultivating peaches. In the 8th century, however, Charlemagne the Frank began promoting the tree known as the peach quite heavily. 
and due to Charlemagne the Frank's power and influence, he was able to extract high amounts of organized labor from his dependents quite easily. And so what Charlemagne wants, Charlemagne got, and so more peaches were grown within the area where Charlemagne ruled, shifting the importance of peaches from a marginal crop to a major crop. The aristocrats being more educated in the sciences of agriculture than the peasant class at that time, began starting up different new regiments for managing the peach in order to improve the quality of the peaches produced by trees. Charlemagne also ordered the growing of peaches around the House of Legislation within the Caroline Empire. Unfortunately, due to the limited knowledge of how management was done at that time period, we do not know what the management tools were for that farming at that time period. But amongst the crops grown around the villas, which was a site of lawmaking, include exotic plants like chestnut, peach, quince, and almond. Other documents such as the Bavarian Expla, which were a series of inventories and requests for plants, seem to suggest that such exotics were also purchased by various aristocrats within that society as well. It also lists other crops to be grown in that area, such as spelt, wheat, rye, barley, and oats, as well as beans and peas. Archaeobotanical evidence seems to show that within these gardens within the Caroline Empire, spelt and barley were found in the highest abundance with oats, wheat, and peas only found in the Anapis site and rye only being found at the Kiosing site. Due to the mythological aspects of Charlemagne the Frank, due to the way he carried himself, many pieces of mythology became written surrounding his peaches. And many books were written about his peaches as well, and wrote about peach growing as well. One reference, for instance, seems to suggest that there's cold damage that happens with peaches, although it was opaque on what type of damage it was. There's also written about a strange time period where the buds of the tree were happening at the same time the fruit were growing, and times where the fruit were damaged in the summer when fruit failed to mature. Based on the proxy data found in the Greenland Ice Sheet Project 2, in the two years those phenomena were written about, evidence for two climate anomalies in the atmospheric conditions were found, indicating that abnormal climate fluctuations within that region may be the cause of those strange phenomena written about in those Carolinian books. The question of if Carolinian farmers had the ability to grow cultivated exotics such as peach is based on how much of the old agricultural knowledge from the ancient Roman Empire was retained within peasant culture and within the culture of the Frankish elites. Based on the fact that some of the Frankish elites carried books by various historical figures within agricultural history within the ancient Roman Empire, such as Comella, Pliny, and Palladius, this is a possibility. As mentioned before, there's a lot of mythology surrounding Charlemagne's peaches, including one story where the peach literally seduced a soldier into trying to eat it, while a magical guardian protected the peach, and the two did epic battles over the seductive peach. Yes, the Middle Ages were quite strange, but that's a digression. It was also written about within these various historical documents that different peach pits are associated with different climatic conditions, and that by planting specific peach pits, you'll get specific trees that have specific traits that are suited to different climates. So through careful practice of planting only specific seeds, a decent population of well-suited peaches could be adapted to the Caroline climate. Interestingly enough, this technique has some reality in current breeding, with breeders using with breeders using peach pits to determine the hardiness traits of different strains of peach, such as the Red Haven peach bred in Michigan and the yellow cling grown in Georgia. This is because smaller peaches were often more cold hardy than larger peaches, and pit size correlates with the amount of flesh on a peach. Red Haven, for instance, can be grown in Michigan, but the fruits are very small, 
while large seeds are surrounded by a larger amount of flesh, which is very sweet, similar to the specimens found in Georgia. With this mechanism, the peach growers of that area could easily select for cold-hardy peaches just through selecting the smallest types of peach seed for growing. Now onto one final mystery before we conclude this video. The final mystery is, we know that most peaches cannot store for long periods of time. Peaches are very perishable, so the question is, how did they get there? The most likely way would be through Frisian merchants, which would be the fastest way to the Carolean Empire, but still pushing the perishability limit on peaches. It was calculated it would take materials, they've calculated the various time periods it would take to send the fruit to the main hub of the Carolean Empire, would be well exceeding the perishability limits of peaches, with one location taking about 15 days and the other taking 10 days. Others speculate that long-distance shipping could have happened using traditional preservation methods like drying, but this process would remove the seeds, leaving the pits found in the archaeological sites unexplained. Another written reference suggests that one can preserve whole fruit and honey to prevent spoilage, and current biochemical experiments have found that this process works well in preserving quince shelf lives due to its slowing of the fruit's respiration. Given that Columella described this in the ancient Roman Empire and the Roman elites had access to this, this is well within the realm of possibility as the same chemistry applies to peaches. However, there's no written evidence of such methods being used in the early medieval times. As such, this explanation could be only considered speculation. Well, that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll cover the winemaking regions in Burgundy and what these wines are commonly paired with, as studied by Dr. Benoit Lacat in the University of California. But first, some history on the wine culture of in Burgundy. Although Burgundy boasts one of the richest wine cultures in France and some of the world's best wines, this was not enough to attract tourists with some minor examples, due to a shortage of interest in wines at that time period. The earliest known time period of testimonials regarding wine culture is March 4th to March 10th in 1787, when Thomas Jefferson came to France in hopes of procuring different varieties of grapevine, listing a long litany of different wine grapes in a pamphlet that could be used in United States grape growing. In 1789, the English agronomist Arthur Young traveled to Burgundy and found different types of peach trees, plum trees and cherry trees that dotted the vineyards of the province. He, however, was not impressed by the look of the grapevines or 650 year history of wine production in Burgundy due to the belief that the vineyards of Champagne were far more picturesque. In 1806, Madame de Stael, who was exiled there by Napoleon, also viewed the vines of Burgundy as being ugly and described them as a horizon of posts. The historian Julius Manchet likewise shared this view. Again, due to the more managed nature of the vine production within Burgundy in comparison to the rest of France. However, the American novelist Henry James adopted a view that the very intensive management technique of Burgundy had a beauty in its own right, who viewed that the unruly and untrimmed versions of the vines to be ugly and unorderly, and viewed the orderly and highly managed version of Burgundy grape cultivation as being beauty born from order. This bringing endorsement alongside the fly toxera crisis which wiped out a good chunk of the grape vines in France altered the perception of Burgundy, changing it into a wine hotspot for many peoples. Now on to the various villages where wine is produced. The first village is called Chalbis. The wines there are described as dry, lively, and even sinewy when young. It is described as having hazelnut, honey, and acacia aromas. 
Traditionally, it is used, at least after three years have passed, it is commonly used to be eaten alongside shellfish, veal, and organ meat sausages, as well as Chinese food. The next village on our hit list would be Jevry sur Baton. The wines of that region would be described as having flavors of red and black berries, which matures into an even more strong flavor over time with storage. They're often eaten with strong flavored cheese or strong flavored meats. The next one is Moray de Saint Denis. These red wines are long storage wines. They are said to have strong aromas with berry flavors, which become jam-like in flavor with time. They're often consumed with red meat or chicken slash other fowls and strong cheeses. The next one is Chambol Muxi. This village produces wines with a complex but subdued flavor based on what this researcher has said and is commonly consumed with red meat or game, as well as wild mushrooms and fruity cheeses. The next village is Voguet, whose wines have been described as having aromas of vanilla and spices. They are commonly consumed with autumn dishes such as turkey, chestnut, wild boar, veal, stew, and heavy amounts of red meat. Next is Vosi Romani. The wines in this village are described as having fine, complex, aromas that can be consumed with any meat or meal. The next village is called Nuit St. George's. These are wines that apparently smell like humus, smoke, tobacco, and undergrowth in a good way, and are often consumed with game meat and strong cheeses. Next we'll cover three villages, Lux Corton, Pernand Vergles, and Ladoy Surigui. Sorry for butchering all these French names, but that's the best I can do. The wines here have a broad flavor profile and are consumed with pretty much everything, but mostly French dishes. Next on to the wines of Bion. These wines are said to smell like raspberries and cassis and are commonly eaten with game meat. Next we'll cover the wines of Pomard. These are wines that have scents that are apparently comparable to licorice, prune, or even animals and are consumed with strong-flavored meats and strong-flavored cheese. Next, we'll cover Volnay. These are wines that apparently have the aroma of violet and strawberry, and age well. They're commonly eaten with lamb, duck breast, venison, and quail. Next, we'll cover Mersult. These wines apparently have a green-goldish hue, and smell like linden flowers and almond. And after storage, they develop a quince and hot brioche and ripe fruit scent. They're eaten with fish and white sauce or white meat. The last two villages you'll cover will be Chassis Monchette and Pulogy Montrachette. They have two common types of wine. One called Pulony, which apparently tastes somewhat like caramel, white flowers, honey, mint, and exotic fruits, as well as ferns, almond paste, and citrus and dry fruits. This type of wine is often consumed with fish and stewed calf and curry chicken. Next is Chasseline, which apparently has hawthorn, acacia, and honeysuckle aromas with hints of verbinia, with some mineral flavors in the background. Apparently more aromas emerge as it ages, with honey scents making appearance as well. These are often consumed with white meat and some sort of sauce, salmon, and Asian food. All these types of wines are often consumed with lobster, foie gras, or turbot. Well, that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll cover the history of the Cattleya orchid, Bao Bells. For context's sake, Cattleyas are a series of different species of orchid found in South America. This species is hybridizable with other genera such as Brassavola and Lelia and are used to make such gorgeous flowers, such as the one you see on the screen, which is Cathlia Bao Bells, which is what we'll talk about. Cathlia Bao Bells was a very important, but also very simple crossbreed that happened in 1945. It's a complex hybrid between Cathlia Gascaliania, specifically a white-flowered strain of it, a white-flowered strain of Cathlia Mossiae, and a white-flowered strain of Cathlia Triani. 
initially the white flower strains of Calthea gaskeliana and Calthea mossiae were crossbred to produce the Calthea hybrid called Susan High. This was then crossed with Calthea Trani, the albino version of it, to produce Calthea Edith. Calthea Edith and Calthea Suzanne High were crossbred to produce Calthea Bow Bells. This Calthea Orchid hybrid was bred by the English orchid nursery called Black and Flory, and was one of the best known hybrids with almost every form of this hybrid being suitable for award in orchid shows. The hybrid was bred and named after the clock tower known as St. Mary Le Bow, a clock tower and church in the financial district of London. This church was badly damaged in World War II during the bomb raid, and Black and Flora renamed their crossbreed Bow Bells in an effort to raise money to rebuild that church. Now, Bow Bells, the hybrid, was a triploid plant, indicating that it was a hybrid between a tetraploid variety of orchid and a normal diploid. Susan High was likely the tetraploid variety, since the majority of Calthea-Trani varieties are diploid in nature. Due to triploids being sterile, typically speaking, there's worries about Bow Bells not being able to produce any offspring of its own. But various genetic studies and various crossbreeding attempts produced diploid hybrids. One such hybrid was called Calthea Bobbets, and was made by crossing Calthea Bow Bells with a variety of Calthea Mossiae called Wagnery, yet another white colored Mossiae variety, and was considered the best spring Calthea available. Many growers attempted to recreate this hybrid using every variety of Calthea Mossiae Alba available. Unfortunately, they all failed since all the varieties produced through this reverse engineering attempt were inferior to the original. This led to the different growers and producers of Calthea's to move on to greener pastures. Bob Betts was crossbred with a great many different varieties of Calthea, specifically white-flowered Calthea's and wound up producing a great many new varieties of Cathlia called Cathlia Princess Bells, Cathlia Empress Bells, Cathlia Angel Bells, Cathlia Slave Bells, Cathlia Laura Bells, Cathlia Vesper Bells, Cathlia Signal Bells, Cathlia Tiffin Bells, Cathlia Tribbles, Cathlia Gaston Bells, Brassio Cathlia Heaton Bells, Lelio Cathlia Margaret Bells, and so on and so forth. These hybrids would find their way into the pedigree of a great many, if not the majority, of white-flowered Cathlia orchids. And these lines remain unbroken, even to this day. Well, that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll talk about the history and use of the Damask Rose. We'll start with the archaeobotanical evidence from the Minoan era. Then we'll talk about the early literature regarding Damask Roses, followed by the spread of Damask Roses as a perfume plant and ornamental, and finally conclude with its genetic origins. In a fresco in the Palace of Knossos in Crete that dates back to 3700 BP approximately, Sir Arthur Evans found a painting of a rose on one of the fragments of said fresco. Although modern reproductions make the flowers look yellow, the original was pink. Dr. C.C. Hurst believed that it bore a striking resemblance to the Holy Rose of, of Abyssiania, and identified that rose as a hybrid called Rosa X. Richardi, which is also speculated to be of the same genetic stock as Rosa de Messina, and it's also speculated that it may have been introduced to Ethiopia, where it's currently grown beside churches, although how it happened remains unknown. Remains of this hybrid are also found in a cemetery in Lower Egypt that date around the 1st century AD. The earliest known writings about Damascus roses are found in the Assyrian cuneiform tablets that date around 4200 BP. Although it's still debated, since the Assyrian word for rose is not fully understood, whether or not the tablet refers to a rose or a black mustard plant. The first known time period with a fully known writing about roses was by Herodotus around 500 BC. Herodotus mentions that King Midas grew 
a type of rose that had many petals, up to 20, in number. A similar writing was made by Theophrastus around 300 BC, where he also described many different types of roses, including one that had 20 petals. Again, a trait found in the Damask Rose. Theophrastus also made use of roses in combination with other ingredients to make special oils, when describing how this rose was used in India. Dioscorides described the use of Damask Roses as well. The Romans continued this tradition of using roses as medicine and as ornamentals, with Pliny creating 32 different remedies involving roses, including Damask Roses. Julius Caesar was also known to order many roses from Egypt for perfume making, and it was speculated to be the Damask Rose, or Rosa ex Bifera, a possible intermediary between the wild form and the Damask Rose. Now on to the history of rose water. The discovery of rosewater was not recorded in history, but the earliest known reference comes from the writer Ibn Khaldum, which stated that the province of Farstan in Iran was required to give 30,000 balls of rose water annually to the Caliph in Baghdad in the years 810 to 817 AD. It was also mentioned that it was exported to China and throughout the Islamic world as well. The earliest known European reference to rose water was La Chandier de Harab, written in 961 AD, which recommended that rose water be prepared in April. In the 10th century AD, the Moors probably brought the rose water methods to Spain alongside their territorial expansion. Based on current evidence, independent developments where both the European and Arab world developed their own techniques to produce rose attar to create rose oil. The first known European to do this was Geronimo Rossi of Ravenna in 1574, and during the 1600s, this distillation was used extensively in German apocrypharies. For the Arab world, it was mentioned by the writer Manusi in 1680, who mentioned that during the time period of the Grand Moguls, which lasted between 1525 to 1667, a figure called Muhammad Achem worked with Indians to produce Rosa Char, and that knowledge was then sent to Persia in 1612. After the creation of rose oil, or attar, it became quickly popular by the end of the 1600s, with Iran becoming a primary producer of roses for rose oil, which was then spread from the east and west from Persia, and from there, the Turkish people, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Romanians, and the Bulgarians have all have adopted the use of rose oil. And you already know which and the primary rose used to make rose oil was Rosa Damascena. And various types were also grown in India as well. The place Iran held as the reigning champion of rose oil production was usurped when Damascus roses were introduced to Israel. This fad, however, ended, and by the 1800s, the roses were stopped being harvested, and the Israeli cultivars of Damask Rose had long since gone wild and become feral plants. Baron E. Rothschild later made an attempt to re-establish the modern rose industry, but failed due to new pathogens and manufacturing troubles. And as of right now, Roses are primarily grown for cut flowers in Israel. Now on to the genetic origins of this species. Based on genetics and the work of Theophrastus who said that growing roses from seeds is a bad news bear situation and great variability in quality happens from the seeds, it is likely that it's a hybrid origin plant. The first guess at the origins of Rosa Damascena was that it was an ancient crossbreed between Rosa Gallica and Rosa Canina. However, Rosa Canina is a pentaploid having an odd number of chromosome pairs, five in total, which made that hypothesis ill-advised. Although Rosa Gallica was likely one of the parents due to the existing genetic evidence, Dr. C.C. Hurst later proposed two other explanations of the origin of the Damask Rose. He proposed that it was a crossbreed between Rosa Gallica and Rosa 
Moschetta to make the hybrid Rosa Bicura, which was then used to breed Rosa Damascena. He also made another hypothesis, which was it was a hybrid between Rosa Moschetta and Rosa Finica. Based on the work by Dr. Huxley in 1992, it was confirmed that Rosa Damascena was a complex hybrid rose made from the convergence of three different species, Rosa Gallica, Rosa Mochita, and Rosa Finica, now known as Rosa Fedociello Coena, which I'll call Rosa Finica because it's easier. Well, that all covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll cover a brief cultural history of apples. This will be part one of two apple culture videos. Let's get started. We'll first start with a talk about the invention of the apple pearer. It was invented in 1840 as a device to core apples. You can see an image of what it looks like in the current video. It was at some point introduced to England, and by 1877, it became both popular in United States and Britain. It is speculated to be invented by Eli Whitney, the inventor of the cotton gin. Another legend says that it was invented by Joseph Sterling of South Woodstock, Vermont, in 1781. And still another legend mentions a 13-year-old Thomas Blanchard of Massachusetts inventing the pearer that could core apples. But the earliest known apple pearer was created by Daniel Cox in, in 1785. The first patented apple pearer was made by Moses Cortes in 1803. During this exact same time period, the scientific name Malus Domestica became the official scientific name for apples. And ironically, it also fell on Valentine's Day. Now on to the history of the American apple. Starting with the colonization period of 1600 to 1800, English colonists introduced a sweet apple and other European fruit trees to North America in the early 17th century. The early apple orchards were planted from sea with each tree grown being genetically different than its parent plant, many times producing unpalatable apples. These crops were primarily used for making cider and to feed animals. Since water was not reliable in many areas, cider became the mainstay for beverages. They were also used to make many different types of foods such as vinegars, pies, puddings, fritters, jellies, and marmalades. During this time, the best fruit trees were grafted onto rootstock and over time mass-propagated. And so many new varieties of apple began proliferating throughout North America. One such apple breed was William Price Sr., who converted his forest private gardens into the first commercial nursery in America. He introduced many European varieties of fruit tree and played a role in both plant breeding, plant propagation, and plant promotion of brand new varieties of apple for that time period. The first apple to gain great attention within that region was the Newton Pippin. It was the first apple to be fully developed for an American climate, as it grew well in the Americas, but poorly in Europe. In the 1800s, fewer and fewer new varieties were being bred, and cloned generated varieties of apples were being produced en masse through the process of grafting. In 1803, a book called the Domestic Encyclopedia provided a list of all the apples growing in America at that time specifically the U.S. This includes 62 fresh-eating varieties and 17 hard cider varieties. And various breeders were encouraged to generate new varieties to add to this list. During this time, there was also a rapid increase in exportation of new crops of apples throughout the world. In fact, in 1838, Andrew Stevenson, acting as a representative of the United States, gave Queen Victoria two barrels of Newtown Pippins grown in Virginia. The Queen liked these apples so much, the Queen lifted the export tax on imported apples. In 1845, Jackson Downing made an attempt to make a full list of all the apple varieties grown in America. This was revised by his brother, Charles Downing, in 1869. This book accounted for 1,099 out of the estimated 1,856 apple varieties grown in America at that time period. During this time, many machines and factories were being built 
for drying, coring, and selling different apples for different purposes. The 1800s was truly the golden age of sheer quantity of apple variety and apple harvesting machinery. And there's so much infrastructure being built dedicated to the movement of apples and apple-related products. This led to the eventual commercial specialization that would dramatically change the apple industry. Between the ages of 1881 and 1945, there was a transition from an emphasis on breeding and developing new varieties to producing a smaller number of varieties in larger amounts. It's during this time period that the development and use of pesticides became a key element of commercial apple farming alongside new pruning techniques. These commercial orchards reduced the need to plant apple trees near a home, and the flourishing dried apple market for export purposes began increasing. The development of the perfected fruit evaporator in 1870 and 1875 allowed for a rapid increase in the amount of dried apples that could be produced. The graph you see on this video shows the increase on how many dried apples were produced over that time period. Now on to the apples of our present age. After World War II, the general evolution of orchard management changed again, becoming specialized in monocultures containing even fewer varieties of apple that were grafted onto cloned dwarf rootstock. And by the 1960s, there were only 10 cultivars dominating the market, 9 winter apple varieties and 1 fall variety with Red and Golden Delicious being the dominant top two varieties, with Red Delicious becoming the most dominant one, producing half of all apples grown by the 1980s. And since the 1980s, concerns about monoculture have created an interest in preserving biodiversity, as well as an attempt to resurrect many old varieties of apples since thousands are now extinct due to lack of propagation and cultivation. Dr. Philip Forslane, the curator of the Apple Collection at the USDA, Plant Genetic Resources Unit in Geneva, New York, has created a system that has preserved 2,500 apple varieties from around the world, two clones of each. Sort of like a Noah's Ark, but for apples. Dr. Forslane also preserves seeds and cuttings from wild apple trees from Kazakhstan, the genetic origin of apples themselves. And that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to another episode of Plant Culture. In this episode we'll cover Free American Apple Breeders of the Early Apple Era. Originally I was supposed to be doing an episode on Johnny Appleseed, but I could not find a sufficient amount of information to make a 7-10 to 10 minute episode that would not be regurgitating a book or making use of a sketchy research paper. So we'll discuss free apple breeders and one breed of apple that each breeder bred instead. We'll start off with John Chapman, aka Johnny Appleseed. Mr. Chapman was a bootlegger and apple producer, producing many apples from seed for the purpose of making hard cider. He was part of the Swedenborgian Church, a subsect of Christianity that believed that grafting was evil. Through the process of producing many trees from seed, a great many variations of apple were formed in the process. Due to the frontier lifestyle of New Englanders back in that time period, from whence Mr. Chapman lived, aka the early 1800s, clean water was not as available as it is now, so hard cider had to replace water since it was safe to drink. Amongst many of the apples found in Mr. Chapman's orchards, was one of the apples soon to be named Golden Delicious. In Clay County, someone found that plant, and from there the Stark Brothers obtained that apple tree, who then introduced this crop to the Americas in 1916. Golden Delicious was likely a seedling of Grimes Golden, a common American apple at that time period. The Golden Delicious tree is introduced to the Stark Nursery via a West Virginia mountaineer orchardist, the name Golden Delicious was given to this apple because it resembled Stark Delicious, the older name for Red Delicious. Due to its flavor being deemed superior to Grimes Golden, it became one of the major apples to launch Stark's nursery into the high profile it held at that time period. Now on to our next character and crop. 
The next alpha breeder we'll be talking about is John Moore and his creation, the Newtown Pippin. The Newtown Pippin. The Newtown Pippin is an apple with a high level of sweetness and sharpness in combination with an aromatic flavor, a honey flavor, and a pineapple flavor, making a very interesting flavor experience based on the link below. It is still very prized to this day within the Virginia region, especially in the states that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington once lived, and it's gradually regaining its popularity in its origin point. New York City Newtown Pippin is named after the town called Newtown, which was later renamed Elmhurst. In the early days of Newtown, Reverend John Moore created the Newtown First Episcopal Church, which remains Queen's oldest church. The Reverend's son, Gershom, planted 500 apple trees from seed on the grounds. One such seedling turned out to be quite tasty, and it was called Newtown Pippin. This apple is small, green, and lumpy. But due to its great flavor and high sugar content, it was used both as an eating fruit and a fruit to make cider, eventually becoming an apple of the elites in England and for the people of New York and the rest of America. It fell out of favor, however, with the more aesthetically pleasing apples that were developed after the Newtown Pippin. A decrease in grain prices removed the need for cider as more turned to whiskey, and since Newtown was rechristened Elmhurst, no one knew what Newtown was, and the apple became more known for being grown in the antebellum south, being known as the Alberley Pippin. Although it fell away from popularity, several different farmers successfully brought it back, although in a smaller form. In the end, it's not as popular as it used to be, but still holds a place in the hearts of many farmers and farming communities within the Americas, as well as various towns throughout the New York and Virginia area. Now on to our final apple cultivar and our final apple breeder. The final breeder we'll talk about is Joseph Warren, one of the first colonists to arrive in the Americas. He was amongst the first English colonists to arrive in what we now know as the United States. He settled in what was now known as Roxbury, a place in what we now know as Boston, Massachusetts. The apple cultivar Roxbury Russet emerged as a chance seedling, likely born from a random seed tossed away from an English apple brought over by the colonists during the early 1600s. Mr. Joseph Warren found this apple tree and propagated it, and it became known as the one of the first known apple cultivars ever bred within the North America region. It is described as being an apple with a very refreshing, aromatic, and highly sweet flavor with some acid mixed in to add some tartness. It is one of the most disease-resistant apples we know of, being resistant to fire blight, scab, and mildew, although it cannot handle canker very well. It is sometimes confused with the golden russet, but has a more flattened look in comparison to the golden russet. To this day, it's regarded as a high-quality heritage apple, and is somewhat popular for blending into cider mixes, due to a very high sugar content. The breeder ultimately died when he fell off one of his trees in an apple-picking accident. Well, that about covers everything. Thank you for watching. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Plant Culture. In this episode, we'll cover the ancient trade between the ancient Holy Roman Empire and the Islamic Caliphate. This paper is done by Dr. Margie van der Veen of the University of Leicester, and here are the results of her findings. In the excavation of various trade routes and different ports, during the 17th and 18th centuries, in an ancient trade outpost run by an Arabic trader named Qasir al-Qadem, in a location currently referred to as the Islamic Indian Ocean Trade, located on the Red Sea coast of Egypt, evidence of different trades between the Holy Roman Empire and the Islamic world were found. At that location, various samples were excavated, which include remnants of leftover food and fodder, consumed by both people and pack animals, 
remnants of 12 imports, which include remnants of complete fruits, fruit stones, seed remnants, rhizome fragments, and seed capsules, as well as various types of husks. These have been dated in the context of dated pottery, which was found in, and there's evidence that it was somewhere between the 1st and early 1st century. This corresponds with evidence that pepper, specifically black pepper, the fruit of a spice tree known as Belaric Myrobalan, commonly used for tanning leather and as a source of black and brown dye, and as a medicine plant. The researchers also found evidence of coconut, rice, mung bean, and a spice known as emblic that date around that same time period. Our samples found in that dig site include remnants of cardamom, turmeric, ginger, black marobalan, the spice called fagera, the spice called betel nut, and all these spices were found either in the Middle East or outside of that Asian continent, being the first example of non-Asiatic goods being traded with Europe in post-classical history. Six of these samples found within this region were not from Asia and date to between the late or mid 11th century and the early 12th century. The most common finds in the dig sites were black pepper, rice, and coconut, with turmeric and beetroot being the rarest, with only one specimen of each being found within the archaeological dig site. Four of the imports found in that dig site were spices of the modern culinary sense, black pepper, ginger, turmeric, and cardamom. The other four were used for medicine purposes such as belleric myroblan, black myrobalan, embolic myrobalan, and fagera. There's also one narcotic plant found, specifically betel nut, and the remaining three plant imports are said to be sent towards ancient Rome, where rice, coconut, and mung bean. Similar products were also found in that date around the 11th century, and various texts also mention purchasing different spices from the Treyar Kusur al-Qadim. These spices include cardamom, cinnamon, and ginger, and six of the species found in are of the same type as those delivered by that Islamic trader. Based on both archaeological and textual evidence, it is likely that the most commonly traded spice was black pepper, and was traded in high quantities. There's various speculations on what drove this trade. Since spices were highly prestigious items back in that time period, it would have likely been the result of trade between the elites of society within the Islamic and Holy Roman Empire realms, as spices were one common symbol for prestige and honor in both civilizations. And due to the fact that there's heavy amounts of mystery in the Eastern realms by the early Europeans, a great many spices carried a whole lot of folklore with them, and so Middle Eastern spices became magical in the eyes of many European people. Also many spices such as cardamom and ginger, which all share the same family, are rich in various types of secondary metabolites that can improve health. Even though they did not have the fundamental understanding of chemistry that the modern world has, they understood that the elite of these groups knows that their health improved when they consume these substances. This will further improve trade relationships during that era. Now as for what they were used for, many different books, such as recipe books, pharmacopias, and other historical texts, describe the use of various types of plants in both ritual, cuisine, and medicine. Peppercorn seemed to be primarily used for food purposes, and many peppercorn pieces were kept in ornate food jars, such as what's seen here on the screen. Dioscorus also mentions the extensive use of pepper, specifically black pepper, as a foodstuff and as a means of fine off coughs. Ginger and cardamom were historically used by Dioscorides and by their successor physicians as all-purpose antidotes to different diseases, with ginger being used as a means of treating stomach problems and cardamom being used to treat inflammation. And a great many of these spices were used extensively by the Roman Empire for perfume purposes. And many spices from the Middle East were used extensively by the Romans for perfume purposes, especially for females, although none were found at that trading post mentioned before. 
indicating a more wide trade between the two empires during that time period. The elite also obtained Black Maroballon, which has 10 times more vitamin C than apples, and is said to be useful in treating diabetes in ancient times. It was also used by sailors to treat scurvy. These events likely awoke the spice desire within the Roman peoples, which would be inherited by the other countries that were once attached to the Roman Empire. And this desire would lead to many different conflicts and brand new discoveries, both for good and for ill. Well, that about covers everything. Thank you for watching.